When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello! This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your host, Liv. 
The woman who has spent, oh my gosh, almost five years now rambling to you all about Greek mythology. Happy New Year. It's 2022, which looks about the same as 2021, only maybe worse. Good times. Pandemic life. Am I right? Well, today I am here with a special New Year Q&A. Q&As are really fun for me because, I mean, you guys ask me so many incredible questions in DMs and emails that I just can't get to them all. It, it, my Between my social anxiety and my ADHD and my inability to focus on anything at any given time, I have a lot of trouble keeping up with all the incredible messages and support you guys give me. I am grateful for it all. I try to read all of it, but I just can't get back to you all the time. And I have a lot of guilt about that, which is why I then give you Q&As. But they're also a great time for me to answer these questions that are applicable to everyone else. Questions where if I were to answer it directly, a lot of other people would miss out on the answer because so many of you have such similar questions and I want to be helpful to everybody. And also, I like to ramble on in audio form about some of these answers. This is also why I enjoy my Patreon God of the Month series. If you're ever interested in joining Patreon, it is available to all of the patrons, $5 and up. And it just basically is me answering your questions about particular gods every month and rambling on and on and on about them. I have a lot of fun with it. And I wanted to kind of do that again today, but with really broad questions whatever you guys wanted to know. I get a lot of questions about mythology generally, sources, um, you know, ancient fiction novels, uh, podcasting, book publishing, like so many broad questions that I thought, hey, this is the perfect way to start a new year. Plus, it means I don't have to do any research beforehand, which means I actually took a holiday. That was very exciting. So with all of that out of the way, I'm going to try to answer as many questions as I can get to. I got so many questions from you all, so we're going to try to dive right in and get to as many as is humanly possible in this episode. Favorite goddesses, book recommendations, and the wild wonder of ancient Greek sources. A New Year Q&A. Alright, so all of your questions ended up falling into a few different categories. I'm going to answer them within those categories so that I can refer back at a later time to anyone who wants to find specific questions. How convenient for all of us. We're going to start with the questions devoted to none other than mythology itself. Any questions that you had surrounding characters, their stories, all of that more specifically mythological realm. Starting off with a bang. Pandora asked, what is your favorite myth in Greek mythology? This is a question I get a lot and one that I don't have a great answer to, but I think that's because of what is ultimately a great response, which is just that I love all of them for so many different reasons and in so many different ways. I find I'm not a person who has like favorites of many things. I don't know if it's just how my brain works or what, but I don't think in favorites. I just think in what I 
care about at any given moment, what I find most interesting when it comes to research, who I find most fascinating. So obviously Medusa is up there, but that's mostly because I find her so interesting in the ways in which she transforms over time, but also means so many different things in so many different sources and places and time periods. It just becomes fascinating. So I mean, if Gun to my head, I had to pick a favorite. It's going to be Medusa. But at the same time, really, it just depends on what I'm researching. Because there's also, there's Medea, there's the Odyssey, there's just the ways in which I love shitting on Theseus in his stories. There's just, there's too many things to pick a favorite. Amaris asks, who is the goddess slash mythological person of Dion. I have seen her in the Iliad as the mother of Aphrodite with Zeus. Is she the goddess of something or a nymph? Okay. So Dion is really fascinating, kind of because of how little there actually is about her, particularly from the archaic period, which is where like our earliest written sources come from for the mythology. So Dion is a titan, a very early stage titan. According to Hesiod, she's the daughter of Oceanus and Tethys, which would make her an Oceanid, but like a first generation Oceanid. So she's definitely one of the older titan goddesses, and she does does appear in Hesiod as well as in Homer. In Hesiod, she's basically just the daughter of Oceanus and Tethys, amongst a whole host of others. If you listened to my reading episodes over December, that was so much fun. Um, the list is endless when it comes to those children. So she's just sort of one of the many in Hesiod. But then in Homer, she is the mother of Aphrodite with Zeus. So that's kind of fascinating in itself. You know, Hesiod has Aphrodite as, you know, she of the castration foam, my beloved. And Dione is just this random titan daughter of Oceanus and Tethys, whereas Homer has her as the mother of Aphrodite. And it just is a great example of the variations, right? And the way that like different things were believed in different places at different time periods. There really is no way to track anything like right or wrong. We just have these fascinating variations and these sort of broadly different people. She also appears in uh, the Homeric hymns as kind of just one amongst the big titan goddesses, the important ones. So she's around, but in all of these different ways and different places, it's really quite fascinating. But generally, there's not too much to know about her beyond these sort of just interesting variations. Um, my beloved website, Theoi.com, also says that she was a, a titan in charge of Zeus's oracle at Dodona, which is Zeus's oracle. I think it's the only one or certainly the major uh, oracle of the time period that was run by Zeus. And then if Dion was a part of that too, it seems. So just generally a fascinating character while simultaneously having like very little in terms of actual substantial details to talk about. Annie asks uh, about Cupid and Psyche. They ask, why do you think the Oracle of Delphi told Psyche she would marry a monster? From what I've learned from you, Aphrodite wanted her to fall in love with one, so maybe that's why. It's still weird that she was wrong. Why do I think that is? So that is an interesting question, and I think it all comes down to the fact that Cupid and Psyche, while a story that I have, uh, I think, inflicted upon all of you as this wonderful thing um, <laughs> from those early episodes, really is just a, a brief 
maybe not brief, but it's sort of like a just an out of place anecdote in Apuleius's The Golden Ass. It is a bizarre example of just sort of this one long story amidst this otherwise completely absurd and ridiculous and pretty bad novel from Rome. Whereas, you know, Cupid and Psyche stands apart as this like special story. It's where they got Beauty and the, Beauty and the Beast. It's, it's where so many things came from. And yet in terms of the ancient sources, it's, it's really interestingly sort of out of place. I would say. And to me, that's why the Oracle could be so outwardly wrong. And that's just because this story didn't come from ancient Greece. It certainly didn't come from like a particularly ancient time period. Like, I don't know the history of Rome at that point, like whether they still put any stock in the Oracle. They probably did, but it wasn't remotely the kind of faith that the Greeks put into it. And so this guy, Apuleius, writing about uh, the Oracle just would not have had the same stake. Like, it wouldn't have had the same you know, she, it didn't matter, I guess, what the Oracle said. It was, it's a novel. So it's like a plot point versus like a belief system, right? Like in the Greek mythology, the Oracle is a belief system. These are oral traditions passed down who have no real author, who just these stories that were told all over the place and shifted and grew and all these different fascinating things that make up Greek myth. Whereas Cupid and Psyche is a novel written by a Roman guy, like many, many hundreds of years later. So it's just sort of completely unique and thus the role of the oracle just is not remotely the same as as the role of the oracle in Greek myth. Paris B asks, Gigantomachy versus Titanomachy. It seems like these two are always referred to as the same thing. Is there actually any difference in what took place and when things happened? Yes, yes. Huge difference between these two things. So the the ending of the word maki just means war. So the gigantomachy is the war with the giants. The titanomachy is the war with the titans. They sound similar in English because of that, but they were very different. It's it's exactly like saying, you know, the war with the giants versus the war with the titans. So the giants were, well, giants, but they were specifically these kind of like, these creatures that were meant to do uh, damage, to, that were like, meant to be defeated, you know? So they were causing all this trouble, what have you. I did an episode on it, but it was so long ago now. But I would recommend you listen back to it because the Gigantomachy is quite fun. We don't have a ton of sourcing on it. Mostly what we have is like it was depicted in friezes and artwork and all of this stuff. So we know it was a big deal, but we don't have a lot of written sources that have survived. Um, But it was just the war with the Olympian gods versus the giants. You know, it's how they understood some volcanoes in Sicily. They say the whole war took place in Sicily, which is why Sicily was like full of monster or full of um, mountains and volcanoes, which is really fascinating generally. So it's kind of their way of understanding the particularly like rumbling nature of that area of Italy. Um, Sicily was really important in Greece. It was actually called Magna Greca at a point. Um, and basically, Sicily sort of is the the main locale for the gigantomachy in the way that it survives today. Um, Whereas the Titanomachy is the war for succession in a different way, right? So the Titanomachy is the Olympians defeating the Titans and therefore taking control. Like the Titanomachy is how Zeus took control of the world. Whereas the Gigantomachy is more of like, 
they were defending themselves, I guess, is an easy way to to understand it. Like the Titanomachy came out of Zeus defeating Kronos because he'd eaten all of his siblings, like that whole mess. And then there was the big war with the Titans. And, you know, some Titans sided with Kronos and his ilk, others sided with Zeus. So then you have Titans that were, you know, in the end, not in trouble, like Prometheus and Epimetheus. Um, whereas you have Titans that were imprisoned alongside Kronos. So it very much shaped the Greek world and the Titans that we know of amongst the Greek myths, like Eos and Uranos and Prometheus and Epimetheus, whereas versus the Titans, rather, who were in locked away in Tartarus after this happened. So yeah, it's they're quite different and quite interesting in their own rights. We don't have a lot of sourcing for either, which is why I haven't been able to tell them in super great detail. But there is an episode on the Gigantomachy. If you just if you literally Google Myths Baby Gigantomachy, you're going to find it. That's an easy way to find any stories I've ever told uh, because it'll just pull up the episode. And then same with the Titanomachy because I covered the Titanomachy earlier this year. So they're definitely distinct, both really interesting. Maki just means war or like war with. <sighs> All right. Uh, Lily Flowers on Twitter asked, what happened to Medea after she fled from Athens? Also, what is your favorite source that you have read, book, website, etc.? So first question, Medea. Um, as far as I understand it, according to most of the sourcing, the general understanding is she just returned to Colchis. She sort of got to go home and live amongst her own people because, you know, she was a barbarian, right? That was her whole thing in Greece. So it was a big deal that she got to go home. That said, um, there isn't a lot because it wasn't really important, right? It, it kind of, it goes back to the whole, like, the, these weren't stories told to fit a particular narrative or to prove a point. And so nobody really cared what happened to Medea after because she was no longer of their concern, right? You know, the the main myths surrounding her are her with Jason, etc., all of that whole mess. Um, and then we have her in, uh, you know, in Euripides and Medea going off with Aegeus. I don't know offhand if she went off with Aegeus in a lot of other stories or whether it's just in Euripides. Obviously, she is in Theseus' story in some way. So it seems to have existed kind of beyond that. But she sort of is just there to be a foil for Theseus. So what it probably was, was, you know, they had this story of, you know, this troublemaker from the East, this barbarian witch woman, and they wanted to give Theseus like a foil, someone to defeat, someone to prove that he was smarter than, right? And so they, they took Medea and thus, once that was over, it just didn't matter where she went. So I like to say she went home to Colchis. She got to live her best life, you know, deal with getting over the fact that she had to kill her children, that whole thing. Um, but basically, yeah I, yeah, I like to say she went home, but it really didn't matter when it came to the sourcing. And so we don't have really a lot of concrete information about that. So Maya had a really interesting point to share. Uh, they said, I had an epiphany a while back when you told the story of Argus and how the peacock got its eyes on its feathers. The bird became a symbol for Hera and I realized peacocks are not native to Greece. They were only first seen when Alexander the Great went to Persia. I was just wondering if you ever thought about the origin of that story or if the story of Argus was potentially changed when the peacock was brought to Greece. Okay, so this blew my mind and I found it super duper fascinating and I did a bunch of digging because I, uh, that sounds crazy to me. I mean, I guess I just never thought about, you know, where peacocks were. I saw a peacock at Knossos. So I'm just like, you know, peacocks are in Greece. <laughs> Obviously, that was very recent, though. 
So this is utterly fascinating to me. And I did not find sourcing on her being associated specifically, or rather Argos being associated specifically with the peacock from before the Hellenistic period, which would have been, you know, after Alexander the Great saw them. And so, so interesting. I love that note. It seems like beforehand, Argus is just depicted as this guy with a lot of eyes, but the peacock stuff does seem to come later. So interesting. So clearly, no, I never thought about it before, but I love that I did. So thank you, Maya, for bringing that up. Super fascinating. Anna said, Cerberus, one dog that embodies three heads or three separate unique dogs, doggy souls, that share a single body. Please, I must know your opinion on the best boys. Well, that's just a fun question. (sighs) I mean, God, how does one consider how it would be to be a three-headed dog? I think I like to think three separate unique doggy souls because that just seems kind of cuter maybe i like just the lore olympus of it all where like sometimes he's just like a regular dog with one head and sometimes he's like three dogs or sometimes he's a three-headed dog i think that's how it goes i've been keeping track but so yeah that's sort of the options of it you know and granted this is all under the idea that cerberus is just like this cute kind of fluffy three-headed dog whereas primarily in the early sources it's like this monstrous dog-like thing with like a snake mane. Remember when I told you guys that it had a Cerberus had a snake mane? Fascinating. So, you know, Cerberus in general is a is a wild ride, I think, in terms of like what the dog looked like, how he existed, all of these different things. But I do love the question of how many doggy souls were in there? Jinyansha asked, do you think there was more myths about Hestia in ancient Greece spoken orally and not written down? Yes. Big, enormous yes. I mean, the thing about Hestia is just how fascinatingly important she was for a woman who has no myths associated with her. Like, how intriguing is that? You know, like, there's just nothing to say about her when it comes to storylines or taking part in any myths or really anything. And yet here she was being like the most important. And I don't know if that was because she was so important in the home, which would have been sort of the woman's domain. And therefore maybe they had little interest in including her when in the stories that were written down that survived saying that specifically. But I imagine she had to have been a part of so many stories, but also just like daily life things, right? Like thank Hestia for this fire that's still burning in my hearth. And it's truly fascinating to think about what we don't have when it comes to somebody like Hestia and lots of others, but she just stands out because truly like so important, utterly vital. Like they would have thanked her with every meal they cooked, with every moment their house was warm, with every moment they had light you know, in their homes. And yet she here she is like not being a part of any story. It's truly fascinating. So the answer is yes. I'm sure she was a part of so many things that they talked about that we just don't have. Blackstar asked, I was wondering what you thought of the process of casterization or stellification when the gods turned a person into a cluster of stars. Do you think being turned into a constellation was a punishment or great honor? I see it as a prison being sent to the phantom zone like in the old Superman movies. Do you think you'll ever do an episode on all the people ever stellified and the circumstances around it? Okay, lots of things happening here, including teaching me words like casterization and stellification. 
I just call them getting turned into constellations. Um, this is really interesting. I definitely think they didn't see it as a punishment. It was, uh, in terms of the um, the examples that we have, it tends to, it seems like it was an honor because we have examples like Ariadne's crown, right, which is Corona Borealis. We have the twins, Gemini, the Dioscuri, who were super important mythologically. We have, you know, the Nimian lion of Leo for Heracles, as well as Cancer the crab for Heracles. We have Chiron. Sagittarius. So the examples are that these were tended to be really good people or characters who were then placed into the sky when they died, primarily. So to me, it seems like it feels like immortality for mortals, you know, giving them something beyond their mortal life, where they would normally have just died, gone to the underworld, you know, their bodies would have decayed. Whereas now they're up in the stars for everyone to see forever. So I think it's quite lovely. I love thinking about the uh, the characters that they believed to be up there and why. It tends to be super fascinating. As for an episode about it, I've done episodes on all the zodiac symbols. Um, you know, other ones will come up as they come up, but I probably won't do an episode about all of it just because those tend to just be like a list of me saying things because more often than not, there's not a huge story around it. You know, like my absolute favorite is like, I'm a cancer. That's about all I know about astrology, to be clear. Um, But I'm a cancer and cancer the crab was literally like, this crab that Hera sent to distract Heracles so that the Hydra could kill him. And then Heracles like stepped on him. And that's the whole thing. And then Hera put the crab in the sky. Like, it's so silly. It doesn't have much of a story other than, you know, the whole Hydra. But like the crab itself is like barely in it. He's just so silly and sad. So it, it tends to be like, it would just be kind of a list. And those don't make for great episodes, unfortunately. But as these stories come up and somebody was placed in the sky, I will absolutely be sharing that. Tom asks, how do you think the myths got to be so wacky and convoluted? Petty jealousies among the gods, people eating their children, Zeus disguising himself as a swan or a golden shower. For example, the Norse myths seem less out there, in spite of their oh-so-human gods cross-dressing and pranks. So I wish I had a better comparison for other mythologies because I don't really. My knowledge is really truly like all based in Greek. Uh, But To me, yeah, I mean, the answer, the obvious answer would be that they were connecting them with humanity. But like you're saying, you know, the Norse had very human gods without maybe necessarily having so many animal transformations in order to sleep with women, which is definitely, I would say, both a flaw and a fascinating and entertaining perk of Greek myth for all of the problematic nature of it all. It's still funny because thank the gods it wasn't real. But You know, to me, I don't know, maybe it's just like the way the Greeks saw the world around them. Maybe it's something particular to their location and things they were trying to understand. Maybe they just saw humanity in a darker way than than other mythologies or specifically Norse as the example. I mean, there really was the, the stories are just so broad and interesting and weird and gods, I wish I could understand why, but I love it. It's hilarious. And, you know, for all the awfulness of Zeus, at least when we're talking about all of his varied assaults, we get to have good stories like showers of gold and swans and women having to lay eggs and things like that. Because if it was all, you know, just straight assault, like say Poseidon, it would end up depressing, which is why I rarely talk about the Poseidon ones, even though he is 
I would argue considerably worse because his were just shitty and violent and awful, whereas Zeus's at least had a bit of pizzazz to them. It seems to me that Zeus at least felt like he was in the right. It's gross. Anyway, it's all weird, but I just find it fascinating and I wish I had a better answer than it's just so silly. The Greeks were so silly. I love them. Not a great answer. (laughs) And the final mythology question for today is from Sam. What happened to Hecuba after the Trojan War? She was awarded to Odysseus, but never features in the Odyssey. Something must have happened in between. So the reason I wanted to end on this question is that herein lies what I love so much about studying Greek myth, about learning Greek myth, and particularly Greek epic. So basically the answer here is just a matter of sourcing and time periods. Because if you recall, the Iliad itself, right, the Iliad does not end with the end of the Trojan War. It just ends with Hector's body being returned, the funeral games for Patroclus, the sad, sad bit with Priam, you know, and so from there, the Trojan War is not over, but the Iliad is over, and the Iliad and the Odyssey are the only two surviving epics that we know of, or that we are sure of, rather, from that time period. There is the epic cycle, yes. The epic cycle was certainly, you know, it did, there were a number of other epics associated with the Trojan War. But as far as I understand it, we don't necessarily have proof that they all existed at the same time period. So what it might have been is that, you know, we have the Iliad and the Odyssey. We know these are archaic stories, if not necessarily archaic texts, but the stories themselves were told throughout the archaic period and earlier. We know that, but we don't know that any of the other stories about the Trojan War were necessarily that old. It might have been that the rest of these stories that told the end of the war, the aftermath, the in-between, all of those could have come later. And so then we have the same answer of, you know, there is no one true story, one true source, there is no right and wrong, there is no chronology that you can really try to figure out. So that is all to say that we don't necessarily know what happened to Hecuba when it comes to, you know, the stories from that time period the quote-unquote Homer, whoever that may be, time period. So it might have been that Hecuba did not necessarily have a story after the Iliad, or she had a different one that we don't know of. Maybe certain bards would tell of one thing happening to Hecuba and others would tell of something else. We know that she went to with Odysseus, but we don't know that in when it comes to the Iliad and the Odyssey. We know that according to later sources. So that kind of accounts for why she is not in the Odyssey, because we don't, it might not have been that there was that thought put in or, you know, that maybe some other story existed and maybe Hecuba went with somebody else in that time period. There could be so many things we just don't know. And so to me, it's more, that's sort of the answer is, is maybe that they just, they just don't link up, you know, whoever told about Hecuba going with Odysseus wasn't concerned with the Odyssey or vice versa, right? Because these really were stories told by so many different people over such a long time period, varying and changing and growing and adapting before they were finally written down much, 
much later than when they were originally being told. Like in the realm of a couple hundred years, if not longer, from when these stories were originally being told by varied bards of the region until they were actually written down, until they were actually written down into what we have today. Uh, I I just find that whole that all of that is the most exciting and interesting and confusing and like mind bending thing for me when it comes to mythology. I fucking love it. I love thinking about why these things were different, why we have what we have and don't have what we don't have, why there were so many variations or why there's completely contradictory details depending on the source and time period. Because truly, like, all of these stories, if we're going from the, you know, Homeric epics all the way up until the Greek plays and afterwards, somebody like Apollodorus, if we're talking about that time period, we're talking like seven to eight hundred years. If you count Ovid, like that's, you know, that's generally the time period, maybe even longer. So imagine how much changes in that many hundreds of years, right? I mean, I, I talked about Superman earlier or in a question. Think about how many different variations on Superman we've had. And all of that has been in less than 100 years. And yet we have all these like comic books, I think, are a great example now that I'm on this train of thought, because comic books have spanned, you know, certain characters have spanned decades and decades and decades. And so we have all these different variations on them. We have, you know, Christopher Nolan's Batman versus the new Batman or versus the Ben Affleck Batman, right? Let alone the older ones. God, think of the more campy ones from the 80s and 90s. All of those are Batman, but gods, they're all so completely different. And that we're talking about, you know, depending on how how many Batmans you want to talk about. It's still only like max, what, 50 or 60 years since the really old one. I could have a completely wrong time frame, but I know the Bam Boom Pow one is pretty damn old. So it's such a, you know, there's just so much to say. There's so many things that we don't know or that we'll never know or... Uh, that is my way of answering questions in that it's just, oh my god, it's so interesting and baffling and weird and Hecuba's cool is what matters. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, 
we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Now we're going to dive into some of the many questions you all had that are more broadly about me or my thoughts and feelings on various things. First off, Emily, who says, I have a couple of questions. Who is your favorite character on Lore Olympus? Did you love playing through Odysseus's palace on AC Odyssey? And what's your favorite Taylor Swift album? There was more than one Taylor Swift related question in this Q&A, and I love that. I'm very entertained. Okay, first up, who is my favorite character on Lore Olympus? How can I decide? Now, for me, it's all the minor characters. It's all the people in and out on the periphery, if not, you know, sort of secondary characters. I love Rachel's take on Poseidon because to me, Poseidon is so awful. In the mythology, he's just so irredeemable that, like, how could you have fun with him in the way that Lauren Olympus has fun with the mythology? And it is turn him into whatever he is in Lauren Olympus. I was just catching up last night, and at one point, he's just sitting there, and he's like, I hope Hades likes my blowout. I don't know who this Poseidon is, but I love him. So I absolutely love Poseidon. I really like Eros. I've always really loved Eros. Um, Without any spoilers, the most recent episode as of this recording that is free, not Fast Pass. (sighs) She's just finally introduced one of my all-time favorite characters. Right at the end there, bam. 
Some of you might not know who it is, so I'm not even going to say, but oh, did I know from the split second I saw a little flash on my iPad. (sighs) Really exciting. So there's just so many minor characters. You all know I'm not a fan of of Persephone Hades romance. I do like it in Laura Olympus, but it's still just like not my favorite thing. And so for me, I love Laura Olympus for all the other characters, the complexities, the ways in which Rachel is taking the story, the ways she's changing things and just kind of making everything her own. I'm really interested in what she's done with the mythology to make it so that everyone is not related. You know, like very explicitly... The three major goddesses, Hera, Demeter, Hestia, are not siblings of Hades, Poseidon, and Zeus. And thank the gods for that, right? She's not trying to explain how Persephone is Hades' niece on both sides, because that's Greek mythology, but it does not work in our modern world. So I'm really interested in the ways Rachel has changed changed things in order to make it her own and in order to sort of adjust these things and unproblematize other things. And I just find it generally very enjoyable and fascinating. So that is my roundabout answer of most of the minor characters are my favorite in some way or another. Did I love playing through Odysseus's palace on AC Odyssey? If you think I didn't lose my fucking mind when that comes up so early in the game, they're like, go get Penelope's shroud from Odysseus's palace. And I like screeched. I mean, again, this was like the first time I've ever really played a video game that was not Nintendo 64. So it's the first time I've ever played anything intricate or in depth or like world spanning oh my god so as it was it was already fully blowing my whole mind this game and then to go over and find this first bronze age ruin that they're presenting right and like the the way that they've done the bronze age archaeology um you know obviously it's really regional they really pick like what little we have of the bronze age and put it all in sort of the whole of greece and like you have to you have to mess around with that in order to make a a competent fun game but that i could see the mycenaean art or rather it was probably a bit more minoan because that's where we have the minoan art that they've put because that's what we have from the bronze age the way that it's ruins All of these things, the way that Ithaca is just this tiny little rock off the coast of Kefalonia, like it doesn't even get its own like label on the map. And that's so what Ithaca was, like it was nothing, you know, and that's what's so interesting. And they really, they really take what we know of from that region, which is that, or the time period rather, sort of, which is that the Iliad kind of, you know, it really took these characters from really minor locations like Ithaca, Iliad and the Odyssey, I should say, these minor locations like Ithaca and Phythia for Achilles, you know, and and made them these incredible people when their regions were minor, not that important, really sort of blips on the the greater world of, of ancient Greece. And it's sort of like, you know, it's it, it gives you a way to to world build without you know, messing with existing realities, I guess, if that makes sense. It's generally fascinating the way that the Iliad and the Odyssey do it. And then, you know, uh, Assassin's Creed Odyssey really plays on that. Like, they give us details about Achilles, right? I think it's on that little island where you have to do the quest in relation to Evia. And it's like, oh, yeah, this like kind of blip of Achilles, because he really was not from a place that was any kind of major anything in the world of ancient Greece, but his story, you know, spanned the whole of it because it was easier to take characters from these lesser known places and that you could make them more universal 
then taking it from a, a I know a character from like a pre-existing really important place like there's not very many characters that are from Crete there are some but they're not huge you know or it's just it's generally fascinating I'm just rambling at this point but I really love that game and I really love the Iliad and the Odyssey <laughs> and so then to full left turn what's my favorite Taylor Swift album I don't I don't necessarily have a favorite. I listen to a lot of it all the time. It's kind of the answer. I listen to folklore mostly when I'm writing because it's just really chill and becomes kind of background music. So if I'm writing the podcast, usually folklore is on. Um, but otherwise, I really love all of them for lots of different varied reasons. I am not like a big I'm not a person who has become a huge fan of things anymore. I think I like completely I got that out of my system in a really wild way when I was younger with like deep and wild obsessions so beyond greek mythology you know generally i'm not i'm not that person but i just i listen to a lot of taylor swift is the long and short of it (laughs) next from sadie who asks a question i've been asked so many times and i still don't have a good answer to have i listened to hades town yet continuing on if so what did you think if not are you willing to it's so good like seriously i never even particularly cared about orpheus and eurydice but oh man it's beautiful I trust all of you. And I think the answer is just that I don't, I don't have the attention span to listen to a musical and follow along. Like, I think it's my ADHD comes through because I have to pay attention and, and like, but it's singing and I have to pay attention and it's a story and I can't watch it. So it's just like, I just don't. I'm sure it's great. I'm sure it's wonderful. But no, I just, I don't listen to it and I haven't fully tried and I don't know that I can or will. I'm sorry. McCoy asks, are there any myths you like and or agree with Athena? Because from the episodes I've listened to, you're very critical of her character and she's my favorite Greek deity. So I'm interested to know. That's a great question. Athena, I've given her a hard time, but not because of her as like a character or a person or a goddess. The the issues with her span the ways in which the myths have been written down and then interpreted, right? It's a product of the patriarchy in which she was developed and written down not necessarily how she actually you know existed in that ancient world like i'm sure women had all these other stories or i'm sure men did as well like all these different stories of athena that we don't necessarily know whereas the ones that have survived today are like her helping men and punishing women and and she's just so blah in the stories we have today but i know she must have been so incredible and important and she was just so vital and inspirational she's wise she's strong she knows her shit she needs no man you know there's so many questions you can interpret about her sexuality in our modern ideas and there's so much to athena so i absolutely love athena like i love her I have her owl tattooed on me. I wear a bracelet that matches it right over my owl. Like I'm such a huge dork for Athena. Just not necessarily the stories we have. More the concept of her, thinking about her in in terms of what she could have been back then, what she might have been that we don't know. So I absolutely love Athena. I don't have anything against Athena. I have things against the patriarchy in which her stories were written down so that they survive to us today. All right. Pixie asks, question for you personally, because I'm wondering all the time, have you learned Latin and or ancient Greek and therefore are able to read the originals? Tragically, no. So 
No, I took first year Latin in university, but generally for my degree, languages weren't required. I found out later that like basically in order to get a master's or go on past a BA in classics generally, you have to learn those languages. They did not tell us. So I had no idea that I should other than just generally reading them. But I went to school in Quebec and because of that, they taught Latin as if everybody had a really good grounding in Romance languages generally, like French, if not French, and Italian, because there's a huge Italian population in Montreal. And because my French is shit, uh, I only had English. And so trying to learn it was so hard. Like, it just felt so inaccessible. Like, I was I was learning how to learn a language while learning Latin, you know, because I just know English because I know English, but I'm not very good at, like, grammatical terminology or all these different things that were then sort of expected like you just knew like it was really taught as if you'd been learning to learn languages for a long time and so I just got completely overwhelmed and I never continued on and I wish I had particularly I wish I learned Greek really do now I am trying to learn modern Greek which is another question down the line so I'll answer it now I am learning modern Greek on Duolingo and I love it so much and I feel like I'm good at it in this wild way and I'm I'm just kind of obsessed with modern Greek and one day I would love to learn ancient Greek as well but it just feels so much more daunting and I'm gonna have to you know take a whole class and do a whole thing and I just don't have the time but thankfully I have modern Greek on Duolingo because that feeds my soul when it comes to the translations, though, that is really important. Like, I I can't read the original. So what I do is I read a lot of translations. So, you know, I have... Yeah, I read certain things aloud to you guys because I can in the public domain. So I'm always reading public domain translations aloud. But I am always... If I am telling the stories or researching, I am always looking at multiple translations as recent translations as I can find, translations by women. I'm looking for everything so that I can piece together, you know, a kind of quote unquote true, whatever that means, translation. And so, you know, I have like three or four translations of the Homeric hymns that I look at. If I'm looking at a play, I have uh, somebody who helps me research, as I've said, Ash, who's wonderful, and they read certain translations. And then I read other translations in order to put together an episode on the play. You know, I on my shelf, I have like, five or six translations of the Odyssey. I have three of the Iliad. Um, it's, you know, I really do my best to make sure that while I am reading in translation, I am reading so many different translations that I can refer back. And then at the same time, too, I have enough of a grasp on ancient Greek that I can like look it up in Perseus and understand a word if I'm looking to learn more nuance about a particular word. I've done that in the past as well. I also now have this huge, incredible stable of academics that I can go to. So I have a guest on an episode upcoming who then went in and like looked into all these things about the Medusa bit and the theogony, which I'm so interested in. And he came back and like told me all of these fascinating bits and pieces about that tr in terms of the ancient Greek. So I have so many different access points to translations and to people who know it and to my own knowledge that I find it really makes up for not knowing the language. And, you know, I think that feeling like you have to fully understand the languages is is absolutely, it, it limits who can get in and it, it limits to people who have the time and resources to have a formal education. Whereas there are ways to get a fully 
fully like fleshed out understanding of these people and these times and these writings without necessarily fully learning the languages. Like you can put in the work to offset that. And I, I certainly feel like I do. And these next two questions are important and they are related. So we're going to read them both at once. First, Jameson asks, you mentioned you were covering Atlantis at the beginning of 2022. Are you going to do Atlantis merchandise? And if so, when will that be available? And secondly, from somebody named Aries, or who gave me the name Aries, either way, I love it. Hello, Liv. I'm a big admirer of your work. I want to ask about Atlantis. When you'll make this podcast already. We so want to hear you talking about this story. So if you haven't already caught it, the trailer for my new series... Deconstructing Atlantis aired earlier this week on the 1st. It is available now, this trailer, and next week on Tuesday begins my epic dive into the story of Atlantis, the concept of Atlantis, what it was, what it became. I have talked to three different archaeologists all about this. They all have such fascinating takes on different bits and pieces of what Atlantis is, was, became, why it's important, so many things. I'm honestly thrilled. So it's going to be three narrative episodes, me just talking, three episodes with archaeologists, two bonus episodes, one about Disney's Atlantis, because of course I did, and the second about Assassin's Creed Odyssey Atlantis, because of course I did. Honestly, January, after this week, January is Atlantis in the best and most interesting way. I am ready for trolls. I am ready for people disappointed. I am ready for people who are utterly fascinated because the key is it is interesting. It's just not what you expect. Oh man, I even have special artwork made, which goes back to the question about merch. I'm looking into it. I don't have a great answer about merch yet. I just want to tell you that Atlantis is coming next week. It's going to be so cool and good. Stay tuned. All right, this is getting long. I should have realized that I can ramble on forever and ever. I think I'm going to do a part two. For now, quick lightning round questions. These first few are from Eve. What are your favorite ancient Greek plays? Right now, Medea, Bacchae. There are so many. It always grows. Depends what I'm looking for. Medea and Bacchae. What careers would you suggest pursuing if you're interested in Greek mythology? Great question. No idea. Um, I got my classics degree for fun. I thought I would use my English major because I did a double major. Um, and then now look at what I'm doing. So I think my biggest answer is if you don't want to be a professor, which I hear is very hard and pays very little, then find some creative way to use your degree. Write, come up with a podcast, other various things that are totally new to the realm of, I don't know, I guess new to the world of the last 20 years or so, and figure out a way to make your life fulfilled with classics in some kind of unique way. I wish I had all the answers. Somehow it worked out for me, but I still don't totally know how beyond I worked really hard. Next up, this question has been asked a few times. Eve has one ask of it. Every so often you mention a novel you've been working on. Is it the same novel as it has always been or a different one? I'm laughing because it's the same novel that it's always been. I have been writing a novel about Cadmus and Harmonia for, I don't know, are we on to 13 years? I guess so. We might be nearing 14. Yep, I think I started writing it in 2008. Definitely had written most of a first draft in 2008. That version is like 
a completely different novel because uh, it is not very good. And then basically I started writing this novel about Cadmus and Harmonia. I started researching Greek mythology obsessively, ridiculously, all over the place, learning all of this stuff, becoming completely in love with this ancient world of Greece. Then I decided, oh man, I'm going to get it published. Then I figured out, hey, wouldn't publishing be a cool career? Because at the time I was like 21 and had never decided on a career, had not gone to school, any of that. So I thought, whew, publishing is cool. And then I'll go into publishing. And so I went and got a degree in double major English lit and classics for the fun of the classics, went and worked in publishing, realized that sucked, then had a quarter life crisis, then kept working on this novel, then started the podcast, then kept working on this novel. The novel changed. The novel evolved. The novel grew. It is still about Cadmus and Harmonia. It is a completely different novel. I have like eight different complete separate rewrites of this novel all about fucking Cadmus and Harmonia. I don't know how to finish it. I had a draft it's not very good. I just need to be better at writing fiction. I think nonfiction is my thing. Now I'm rambling and basically having a therapy session in this question. It is the same novel, kind of. Also not the same novel. It is all around Cadmus and Harmonia. One day, one day, hopefully, maybe, I will finish it. A version that is, you know, good and decent. And I'm trying so hard, but I never have the time. But I love it so much. Okay, couple other lightning round. What is my favorite myth to talk about? This person didn't put their name. Um, gods, I don't know. There's just so many. Medea, maybe, or Theseus, or Medusa. Just love them all. I love them all. What causes me to be such a misandrist? Uh, I mean, I can't tell if this was asked in good faith or not. I'm not a misandrist. I'm not. I don't hate men. I hate men who rape women. And it tends to be, in stories of Greek mythology, the men rape the women. I don't think that it is misandry i don't even know if i'm pronouncing that right i don't think that it's misandry if you hate men who assault women that seems unreasonable there are good men out there they just don't tend to feature largely into greek mythology but even still there are decent men um none are coming to mind <laughs> anyway i don't hate men and i hate that question because it's obvious i don't it's just that a lot of people are mad that i point out assault being bad Anyway, you know, I'm just a feminist. I'm a straight woman who likes men. I'm attracted to men. I can't hate them that much. Anyway. Amelie asks, if you could be part of one Greek myth, which would it be? And what kind of part would you want to play? Oof, I don't know. Maybe I just want to watch something happen. Maybe I just want to watch the Odyssey like from above, like as a god watching down, kind of laughing as Odysseus fucks everything up over and over and over again. Or I'd like to watch Medea stand up to Jason or, gods, I don't know, Penelope be cool. There's just so much. Cadmus and Harmonia, clearly. I would like to talk with them forever. So I would maybe just like to be a fly on the wall and then maybe I could finish that novel. <laughs> Okay, to finish this off, and before I definitely do a part two, because there's so many other questions, and I really think it's interesting, and I like rambling on like this, like I've said in the past, like I think it gives you different insights because I'm not scripting it. I'm not doing all of this, you know, research beforehand. I'm just thinking aloud, and I think it shows kind of how 
how you can continue to research and just like find new things and the way brains kind of shift and learn in the moment. And I don't know if I'm talking it all up too much, but regardless, I'm going to do another episode of this Q&A that will be just as rambly as this one. But until then, a couple quick interesting questions about history, then a couple about books because you guys always want book recommendations. All right. Ryan asks, what sort of stuff did cults to the gods typically do and was their activity well known to the average Greek or were they secret? So I don't have a great example or answer about like specifics, but I can tell you an interesting thing about the general understanding of cults of worship. So there are two kind of very broad distinctions between types of cults of worship, which is just general cults of worship of the gods and mystery cults. Obviously, one word gives that away. So one type of cult, the mystery cults, were secret. Their whole thing was secret. You know, there was the mysteries of Eleusis where much of that was secret. Obviously, we have some information, but it's pretty minimal because they just didn't write things down. You know, it was all like secret initiation stuff and you learn when you learned. Then there is the mystery cult of Samothrace, which I'm currently obsessed with due to the novel that I've aforementioned and rambled about. That one is even more uh, mysterious. It was the second biggest mystery cult in the ancient Greek world. And yeah, even more mysterious about what they did and what, you know, what was involved. That said, all of the gods or all of the major gods rather had cults of worship, you know, so there was just ways of, of worshiping them that were specific to certain regions, certain types of worship, sacrifice, various things like that. I'd love to do more of a deep dive into that sometime. Um, but I haven't been able to for this. But basically, you know, it was just a cult is just sort of you worship this god, either because you were kind of devoted yourself to them specifically above any other god, or because what you needed at a given time was going to be you could get it from that god. So cults of worship is just a very broad way of understanding how these gods were worshipped. They tended to vary based on region because something that never comes up enough to fully understand it is just how disparate the whole of the Greek world was, right? There was no unified Greece. They were unified by a Gen broadly their language, but even still, there's huge differences in the language depending on where you were as well, right? Most of what we have comes from Athens because it's just that's where things were mostly written down and then preserved. But it, everything varied so much depending on where you were. You know, if you're up in the north of Greece, things are going to be very different from south, for, far, far south on the Peloponnese. And so you have that kind of it was just so broadly different. So the way we tend to understand the cults is regional and then based on the gods. If you're interested in this, I will direct you once more to my favorite website in this world, theoi.com, who have a lot of information from the ancient sources about cults of worship based on each god and in each different region. So one day I'm going to refer to all of that and put something together for you guys. But ultimately, if you're interested, it's a great resource for that because they really have so much of those ancient sources talking about the cults of worship and in the different regions. Okay, and have a very interesting question from Mihai. Do you think gay people in ancient times considered Aphrodite as their protector and worshipped her or a deity that cursed them? Do you think homosexuality in ancient Greece was frowned upon or normalized? I love your podcast and I've been listening to you for two years now. Thank you for everything that you do for us. 
lots of love from Romania. Ooh, thank you. I hope I pronounced your name right. Um, okay, so uh, that is a really interesting question and one that has quite an answer. And again, I mean, like all things, this is based in my general knowledge of ancient Greece, but I do, you know, specialize in the mythology. So it's not the be all end all answer when it comes to this. But really broadly, it's mostly that they just had a completely different viewpoint, because they didn't have the influence of Christianity, right? Like, even if you're not remotely Christian or you're a completely different modern religion now, you still have, you know, at least in the, you know, quote unquote Western world, English speaking world, certainly, you have this bias that is inherent due to Christianity. And that is this even just general understanding of anything remotely being wrong with homosexuality, right? Because in ancient Greece, it didn't... It, it didn't really matter, but also the primary, the most accepted form of same-sex love was something called pederasty, which is very bad in our modern understanding of everything. And that is that there was a very common, at least in certain regions of Greece, um, relationships between older men and younger men often what we would now very rightly term boys, children. And it was like a mentor style relationship that also had sexual components and thus is obviously today, you know, very problematic, not good. Um, but it, so essentially our understanding of same-sex relationships back then was more about the power construct of these types of relationships. Like it was more about who was the top and who was a bottom, to put it bluntly. And that kind of made clear kind of what role you played, what kind of power you had. So if if same-sex relationships were ever looked down upon, it you were looked down upon if you were the bottom, you were the younger one is how I understand it. I don't, I've not researched pederasty. This is all just things I have learned through my reading and, you know, paying attention over time to be very clear. But essentially, it's just that it was a completely different understanding. And that's not to say that there weren't same-sex relationships that weren't pederasty. I'm sure they were. It's just that that was like an acknowledged form of like mentorship and relationship. So it's what we have the most information on because it was like a thing that happened often and so I'm sure there were more relationships there's like there's kind of like a, a really telling piece of information when it comes to how the ancient Greeks say saw Achilles and Patroclus right because there's a, so much debate now were they in love were they in a relationship were they just pals good old friends and back in ancient Greece they were debating things about Achilles and Patroclus but they were debating who was the top and who was the bottom you know that was the concern the concern was not that two men had some kind of relationship it was who held the power what was the power dynamic it was all about power and I think that that relates in the same way to hetero relationships right like who had the power it was all about the women were owned and controlled by the men at least in you know in Athens where we get most of this information and so 
it, it's the same kind of dynamic. It, it didn't really matter necessarily whether you were a man or a woman. The only difference was that like you couldn't own another man in the same way that you could own your wife, that you could control her. And so it was more about the power dynamic inherent in the sex. Because, of course, it's still the same thing, right? They saw the bottom as the woman's role because it was, you know... Anyway, I'm not going to go too deep into sex on this episode, <laughs> but basically it's the same kind of idea, right? And so it was really not about two men. It was just who held the power, who was the top to the man playing sort of the more woman's role for just to put it in very simple terms that are, you know, it, again, we can't really connect it to our current understanding of relationships or sex or power dynamics really because everything was just so completely different so it's just an interesting thing to look at but that is all a really roundabout way of saying like no inherently you know same-sex relationships were not bad they weren't seen remotely in the same way that they are now because of the Christianization of, of like the world. Again, even if you're not a Christian, like I'm not remotely Christian, but I understand this dynamic, right? Having lived in North America. And obviously we, we know that there is nothing wrong with same sex relationships, but because of this past, this influence, you can, you still know you know, that some people are going to say that those people are shitty and they're wrong, but some people are going to say that, right? That they're going to see these relationships as wrong. Anyway, uh, I hope this made any kind of sense. But the real point is that you just can't, you can't see it in the same way. Which connects right to a question from Alex, who said, I saw on TikTok the other day about an ancient Greek army formed entirely by gay men, the sacred band of Thebes. I guess this is more of a suggestion than a question, but I would really like to have more information about it just because, well, an ancient Greek army of 300 gay men. <laughs> yes, the sacred band of Thebes. So I recently bought a book on this, um, which I think is just called The Sacred Band of Thebes by James Rom. And I want to do something on it. I hope to have somebody on to talk about it. I definitely want to dive more into this because it's history. I just don't know enough now, but that was definitely a thing. Like they have found this grave of 300 Theban men in the army and they were like each in couples, basically, as far as I understand it. And, you know, they're, again, just like with Achilles and Patroclus, like, there are people who are going to be here to tell you that, like, no, they were just good pals. You know, that's how why they were buried together in a couple. Like, no, they were definitely, you know, there was some kind of romantic relationship. Now, what kind, how accepted it was, whether these men also had wives, we don't, or I certainly don't know. Again, I haven't done the research on it yet. But, there definitely, you know, like there were these relationships. People loved who they loved, just like they do now. It was not seen in the same way. It was not necessarily accepted either. You know, you, you couldn't like marry in the same way between men, as far as I understand it. But it it definitely, it wasn't the same. And it in some ways it was. But it certainly is just a very different world, right? Just a completely different way of understanding because so much of what we know today has been influenced on the religions of the last 2000 years. And so if you just take those out because they simply hadn't happened yet, it's really hard to fully wrap your head around how they would have understood relationships, sex, gender, all of it, because everything in our world now has been influenced by these 
religions and these societal norms depending on where you are. And so to just take all that out, it's really hard to wrap your head around. But ultimately, yeah, there were absolutely people in relationships. You know, there was the, there was definitely the sacred band of Thebes, which is super cool. There was Sappho. She was writing about loving women and men. And there was, you know, there was such a broad representation. There are stories of same-sex relationships, the gods being in same-sex relationships, stories of gender fluidity, the non-binary, like just a complete lack of an understanding of the binary as we do now. You know, there's Tiresias. And of course, now I've changed it into a gender conversation, but I think it all, you know, all weaves together. There's Tiresias, who was a man and then a woman and then a man and then was able to like verbalize different things because of that. It's all just generally so fascinating trying to wrap your head around how they would have understood all of these things that we see in a completely different way now because of everything in the last 2000 years, you know, like, God, it's just fascinating. All right, we're going to finish it off with a few questions when it comes to video games, books, movies, TV, because you guys are always looking for my opinions and recommendations and I am here for it. Starting off with a personal thrill of mine. Chris asked, Liv, I first got into mythology through the Age of Empires game series, Age of Mythology. My question is, do you know of these games? And if so, what do you think of the games? Do you think they were accurate? If you played them, did you enjoy the main storyline? Okay. So I'm pretty sure it was this question that then led me to go seek out Age of Mythology to the point where I bought a super cheap PC computer so that I could play it because I couldn't play it on my Macs. Um, Because yes, I absolutely played Age of Mythology. I'm pretty sure I had Age of Mythology within like a couple months of it coming out. I had it on that CD-ROM because we had played Age of Empires like one and two back in like God so long ago. And I discovered Age of Mythology and like lost my mind and played it so much. That said, I had it so long ago that I actually think I had it I don't know if I just didn't play the main storyline at all or if I had it before it had that. I don't know. All I remember is that I would just always play the like just the maps. So you just, you know, you make your whole civilization and then you defend it or attack the other one. And so that is always how I played it. So I'm not really familiar with the main storyline. I'm getting back into it now that I have it, but I've only had it for like a couple weeks. And the main storyline, though, follows Atlantis. So the short of it is, no, it's not accurate simply because it has Atlantis. And uh, you'll find out more next week, but Atlantis was not a Greek myth. But other than that, I absolutely love it. I find it so fascinating. I've been playing just like the maps again, and they're super duper fun. And um, I'm with you. That is definitely, it formed a huge part of my love of mythology back in like, I don't know, 2000. Because I was definitely like in elementary school or middle school or something playing these games. All right, on to much more modern games. Veersight asks, what were some of your favorite moments slash details that were in Assassin's Creed Odyssey? So what I love about Odyssey kind of all revolves around the lack of existence of the Atlantis DLC. And that's just because what I like is that before that or without that, it was much more based in reality. Like 
you had these sort of mythological ideas, you know, like the daughters of Artemis, where you have to defeat all of those like quote unquote mythological animals, but they're still real. Like they're based in reality. Like the Nimian lion is just a fancy lion, you know, you don't have to wrestle it or, you know, like Callisto the bear, we are at least to assume is, is just a bear and not a woman trapped inside. The Cretan bull is just a bull, all of these things. And so I found that really interesting because it, it to me, it connected more with how these myths were developed back then, you know, less about these sort of mystical, mythological creatures and more so about understanding the reality around them. Um, so I just love it. I mean, the history is wild. It's so beautiful. So much of it is like deeply accurate, at least in terms of like how possible it is for a video game to be that broad and widespread and still accurate but it is just so beautiful and interesting there's so many different little like bits and pieces I'm currently playing it all the way through for like the fifth time or something utterly ridiculous I really love it and could probably talk about it forever one day I will figure out how to stream but I I don't know when that day will be um but truly, like, I don't know, there's just, there's so much of it. I love all the different individual islands and all the different, like, little tidbits you can find there. Like, when you go to Naxos, like, just how much of it is about Dionysus and Ariadne is beautiful. Um, the the palace at Knossos on Crete is unbelievably cool. The way Crete is sort of, like, much less important, but that you could tell that in the Bronze Age, it was, like, it. It was, like, all that mattered. It's all just, it's so beautiful and wonderful and cool. And now I want to go play it, even though I, as of recording this, I spent all of yesterday playing it the whole day to the point where I was like, what are you doing? How are you still playing this game? You've played it so many times now. How is it still entertaining? And yet it is. Shifting on to books, because many of you ask questions about books more. Uh, I will answer more of these questions in the next Q&A episode, I promise. But a couple interesting questions here. Nora asked, what characters from mythology would you like to have novels centered around that would be like the Song of Achilles or Ariadne? Um, that's an interesting question. I don't know, because I'm so like, I'm so sold on all these characters. Like, I just think anything I'm happy with, you know, like, I'm just happy when there's more content, particularly about these you know, interesting women of Greek myth that have kind of been ignored for so long. Obviously, I love Song of Achilles, though. My God, it's so good. It's just, I mean, I kind of just like watching what other people are doing. Like, I, I have my own characters. And, you know, thankfully, I've found these characters that nobody else seems to really care about except for me. But otherwise, I'm just so, so into hearing about everyone that comes up, you know, like, I'd love to hear more about Atalanta. There are so many novels about Medusa these days I haven't had a chance to read. Um, there's just, there's so much. So really any, you know, like the more mythological content, the better. The more reception, the more taking these stories and turning them into something else or, or expanding upon them, the more, the better. Which leads me to another question from Eve, who asked, what Greek mythology-based fiction novels do you suggest? And they said they've read Song of Achilles and Silence of the Girls. Okay, what I'm going to do, because it's fun and I'm sitting directly next to my bookshelf, is I'm just going to read to you all the ones I have and comment if I have anything to say about them, because why not? Margaret Atwood's The Penelopead. 
This is a really interesting one. It has been a really long time since I've read it. I don't think I've read it even since before university. But it is Margaret Atwood telling, you know, Penelope's side of the Odyssey all in verse, from what I recall. It was very beautiful. It was part of a series of mythological retellings in this kind of way um, that was done way back in the day. And I don't, I think I only have one other of them, which is called The Weight by Jeanette Winterson. I haven't read it, but I'm pretty sure it's like about Atlas, like the weight of the heavens on his shoulders. So that's another one on my list. Then we have The Silence of the Girls, which has already been mentioned. That's recommended. It is about um, the women involved on the Greek side of the Trojan War, Briseis, Chryseis, that whole horror show of a mess. And then there's Pat Barker's other book, The Women of Troy, which came out more recently and is about the women on the other side of the war. I haven't read that one. Then there is Emily Hauser's books, which were recommended to me, but I haven't had a chance to read them yet. Oh my God, where is the time? But I have her books uh, For the Immortal, For the Winner. And then there's another one that I wasn't able to find, which I think is the one I really wanted to read. And now I've forgotten what it was. <laughs> um, Natalie Haynes' A Thousand Ships is one of my all-time favorites. That is the women of the Iliad and the Odyssey, and it is beautiful and wonderful and perfect. Um, Nikita Gill's Great Goddesses poetry series, highly recommend. Here, The World Entire, which is a beautiful novella written by a friend of the podcast, and one Kaya Hayward, recommend that one. It's beautiful, quick read, it's a cheap buy, it's it would support Anwen, so highly recommend. It is about Medusa, if I didn't already say that. Um, the Wolf Den by Elodie Harper, she's been on the show. It's not mythological, but oh, is it good about ancient Rome, or rather Pompeii. And then we have, of course, C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces, which is a very interesting and weird and old adaptation of Cupid and Psyche. Um, this is going beyond mythology now and into just generally books uh, about the ancient Greek and Roman world. We have The Golden Mean, which is by Annabelle Lyon and is uh, about Alexander and is one that I was recommended uh, so long ago, like back when I was working in publishing because we published it and a friend of mine who worked for that part of the publisher brought it in for me and I still haven't read it and I feel very bad, but apparently it is incredibly good. I have read Annabelle Lyon's other book, which is called The Sweet Girl and it is about the daughter of Aristotle, I believe, one of the major philosophers. I'm 95% sure it's Aristotle. That book was very good. I enjoyed it a lot. Just a nice, like, reception on the ancient Greek world and a woman living in it. We have Wake Siren by Nina McLaughlin, which is uh, retellings of, of certain stories in Ovid, also in poetry, a beautiful one. Madeline Miller's Circe, we all know that one well. A good recommendation. Then there are the Mary Renault books, which I have not read, but I know she was writing a lot of interesting stuff way back in the day, um, but about the ancient Greek world. Personally, I have uh, Funeral Games and The King Must Die. One of those is about Theseus. It must be The King Must Die. Interesting. One day I'll get around to reading it. Um, Anne Rice wrote a book called Pandora. Somebody sent that to me. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but if you're listening, thank you to whoever sent it to me because I didn't know and it's interesting. And then, of course, Ariadne. I have two different copies of that. Uh, there's a book called Home Fire by Camilla Shamsi, 
which is a modern retelling of Antigone, if I recall. And that one I've been meaning to read for a while as well. There is House of Names by Colm Toybin, who I probably mispronounced that name and I'm sorry, but that is a retelling of the story of the whole House of Atreus. So Clytemnestra, the death of Iphigenia, Orestes, Electra, Agamemnon. That one's a, a beautiful book as well. And now I know there are more that I'm forgetting that have not fit on my shelf or that are on my to-read pile that is upstairs. <laughs> um, but really, I mean, there are just so many. I I'm going to put out a list or, or keep updating a list on my website. I've just been really bad with finding the time for that. Uh, I have recently been given uh, Jennifer Saint's next book, Electra, that I'm excited to dive into. There is a new one called The Daughters of Sparta that came out earlier this year. Claire Haywood, I believe. I don't have a copy of that yet, but it has been recommended to me absolutely. I mean, it's a huge year for this. Oh, there's the Medusa by Rosie Hewlett. I That one has also been recommended a lot. Seems like it's a really interesting adaptation. I want to read all of these, but I also, I read so much for the podcast that I then have trouble when my like for fun reading is still mythology. I also have a lot of like envy because I can't seem to finish my book and turn it into something good. So I get really stressed out when I read really good adaptations. That's totally my own shit. I'm just sharing it for why I haven't read all of these. I like so want to. And then, you know, after a long day of reading countless sources and writing like 5,000 words for a single episode, it's tough to then decide, oh, I'm going to relax and pick up more mythology. <laughs> But one day, you know, I mean, God, it's just so cool that all these are coming out. I'm so thrilled. I'm always thrilled to talk to these people, to have them on my show, to read their books when I can manage it. It's just exciting that it's there's such a huge resurgence. I'm just so thrilled to be in it with everybody and watching from afar as these novels take off and, you know, enjoying the incredible success of my own book of just nonfiction mythology. It's such a huge and cool time for like nerdy Greek myth shit. So it's, you know, take what you will of those suggestions. There's so many books out there. Find your own, suggest your own. I'm always open to hearing more on Twitter or, you know, having conversations about this kind of stuff. There really, there's so much to say and it's, it's super fucking cool. Well, I can't believe how long I've been able to ramble about this and still not even get too deep into these questions. Oh my god, you guys had so many interesting questions that spawned so many fascinating thoughts and facts and musings. This is why I enjoy these. So I will be doing a part two of this. We'll see when it comes out. Uh, but thank you all so much for your questions. If I didn't get to yours, I probably will in the next episode because there are so many other good ones that I want to get to. So we will be back with more answers. And then on Tuesday, for real, Tuesday, oh my god, Atlantis, it's going to be really interesting. It's quite a, it's just such a fascinating thing to cover, a bit of a departure from how I have to usually cover things because Atlantis is so different. Your mind is going to be probably, I mean, some of you know, but a lot of you, your mind is going to be pretty blown by what I have to say on Atlantis, the real history, mythology, facts. It's really, it's quite, it's quite, uh, quite the story. <laughs> now I'm just rambling again. Thank you all. Next time I will answer more questions about 
history. You guys had some really fascinating questions about historical characters or rather, I suppose, people because it's history uh, or timelines, various things like that. I'm going to answer more questions about translations, both in terms of recommendations and just really interesting things when it comes to translations, the ins and outs and, you know, what we do learn from translations or what sometimes can get lost. I will answer more questions about the myths themselves, as well as how I feel about certain myths, characters. Um, I'll answer more about classics broadly, learning classics, being in school for it, you know, all of these different things. I wanted to get to all of it, but here we are like an hour in and I didn't. Um, so next time, even more of your questions there. Uh, I think it's going to be really interesting and beneficial and I just love answering your questions. So stay tuned. Thank you all truly for being around, for being through another year of this happy 2022. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for listening. Thank you for reviewing. Oh, you can rate five stars now on Spotify. Can you believe it? Go ahead and do that. That's big. I'm just realizing. <laughs> what a freewheeling episode when I don't have a script. You're all the best. I am Liv and I love this shit. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. 
It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.